Previously on Colors. Giannis Trantafolidis is a young communications and multimedia specialist and event photographer living in Greece. And we talked to him recently about his views on race there in Europe and beyond. I would say that there is a, a persistent uh, issue about racism in Greece. I would say in the, in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a surge in far-right support, uh, open far-right support. Far-right has always been prevalent in Greece, but never never this open, and, uh, which is which is definitely the case in, in most European countries uh, in the last years. We can we can see we can see from the shifting governments, uh, especially in the Mediterranean countries, with uh, audience fatigue about the migration issues. You know, coming up in this episode of Colors, I think that the George Floyd incident was one of many, and I can't say that I think there has been a huge change in the United States since then. Jarena Thomas is a black woman who works in intelligence and national security in the Washington area. She sees the glass is half full. I think what George Floyd did, though, was maybe make people a little bit more aware of things that some of us already knew and made them more sympathetic or empathetic. But she says a lot of work still has to be done. I think that people are more aware, but I still think we we have people who don't care or have forgotten or it's too far away from their reality for them to sustain that actual uh, caring and want to do something about it. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. After George Floyd's death in 2020, there were protests, there were public dialogues, there were changes in the way in which governments and businesses and organizations operated when it came to diversity. Was that real, long-lasting change, or was it a flash in the pan? More and more every day we're seeing evidence that suggests it may not have been lasting. And upon analyzing what took place, it appears as though it may not have been lasting change. Are we correct or not? So on this program, we have an analyst. She's an intelligence analyst by training. Her name is Jarena Thomas, a black woman who lives in the Washington, D.C. area, is here to talk to us about what she's seen. Jarena, we've talked a few times since George Floyd's death, and I want to go back and get your views on what took place then, and what you think now, um, three and three years and some change later, about race in America? I think that the George Floyd incident was one of many. And I can't say that I think there has been a huge change in the United States since then. I think that there were tensions before George Floyd was killed. And I think there are tensions now. 
I think what George Floyd did, though, was maybe make people a little bit more aware of things that some of us already knew um, and made them more sympathetic or empathetic. But I can't say that I think that we're in a better place than we were when that occurred. Yeah. Unfortunately, I wish I could, but I can't. I think that people are more aware, but I still think we we have people who don't care or have forgotten or it's too far away from their reality for them to sustain that actual uh, caring and want to do something about it. Yeah. Some people have just walked away from it, it seems to me. But I'm one of those folks who just doesn't have the option of walking away from this. And one of them, one of the reasons is being a being a black man living in America um, and I kind of gather from you and from conversations with you, but you as you as a black woman don't have that option either. I'm not putting words in your mouth, but you tell me what you think. I don't have that option. And I think, uh, you know, W.B. Du Bois talked about this double consciousness that that black folks have to have. We have our own consciousness. We see the world through our own eyes, but we also are forced to see the world through the majority's eyes and see how they see us and evaluate every situation um, through that double consciousness. And that's exhausting. So I don't have the luxury, just like you don't, of just going through the world, looking at it through my own eyes and my own experience. I have to always be mindful of how other people are looking at me, perceiving me, and I need to to moderate my, my behavior and my words accordingly. And it's just frankly exhausting. Yeah. So let's get specific about race in America right now, what you're seeing, what you're going through, what you're experiencing. And just tell me, just give me, lay it, lay it out. Just lay it on me. What, what's your view on race in America and how it impacts you and what you think? Well, I think the idea of America is great. And I think there are some really wonderful examples of people getting along uh, despite their different backgrounds and cultures and races and ethnicities. Um, but I think there's just this underlying element here. And I'm one of those people who think who believes that systemic racism is a thing. Um, and I think that when we talk about race in America, it's not anything we can divorce from politics, from business, from the national security realm or anything like that. I think it's just kind of the simmering thing that's underneath. Um, I think that people also see what they see. And if they're not forced to see race issues, then they don't have to. I'm not saying they're willfully, willfully blind to it. They just don't see the things that we see. So, for example, I was working with a group of girls last week and um, we were talking about different issues in the United States and uh, projecting 50 years ahead and thinking what will still be issues. And one of the young women who happens to be a, a young black woman, a girl, she was a girl. She said she talked about colorism and how that impacted um, what she saw in the world and how that could have larger effects on people moving forward, even 50 years from now. And one of the other young women in the group, she happens to be a young white woman. She said, well, that's not really an issue. You know, when we're thinking about the bigger issues, we're talking about human trafficking and um, drug smuggling and all those things and climate change. That whole thing is not really a thing. And I looked at the first young woman's face and she would just looked defeated. Like her reality and the uh, situation that was significant to her was just shot down from someone who didn't 
understand it, didn't see it. And so she didn't accept it as a as a true issue that should be looked at. Mm. And so that's how I look at it in the in the wider context of race in America. I think there are a lot of well-intentioned people of all races and all stripes, but sometimes people just don't see things um, and therefore their ability to work with it and help the situation is is limited. You know, you have just raised a really huge point that I want to dig on a little bit. Um, you know, <laughs> based on what that young, that little interaction you talked about there, do you get the sense that we made any progress then? Or are these two young people just too young to have essentially absorbed what took place where we are? And are they too young to reflect um, the bigger problem here? That's a good question, JJ, and I don't know the answer. They were certainly uh, uh, alive and, and cognizant of what happened when George Floyd lost his life. But I think they just can't, they come from two different spaces. And so I think based on their environments, they have maybe processed what happened differently. And I think their realities are just different. So, and I also think that sorry. just one, one piece to that go is- ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted, please go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, I think another piece to that is um, what what they're surrounded by. Like I could hear, I could hear their parents talking in their comments. I could hear their environments talking in the comments that were coming out of their mouths. Um, so, and I'm old enough to be able to decipher for that, but they probably couldn't just yet. Yeah. So this was the thing I was going to ask you. Was there some other kind of influence that you detected? Was it? I was going to ask, was it social media? But I, you've just kind of nailed it. Perhaps it was what they've been hearing at home. But do you get the sense that social media is impacting how people think about race and how people act on race and certainly racism? I do. I, th I think social media has an outsized effect on, on lots of things in, in the culture of the United States, from pop culture to politics to everything in between. I do. And I think because a lot of times people, what they perceive is is all they know. So if you see certain things on social media about certain groups of people, that may be your only experience with, with that particular race or that particular culture. So that becomes true to you. Um, so... Short answer to your question, I do think social media ha has an impact. All right. You're a national security professional, if, if if I'm allowed to say this. If not, I can just edit this out. Is that okay? It's okay. All right. That's how we met. Um, and I know that you spend a lot of time thinking about things and analyzing things, and analysis is a big part of what you do. So in looking at what's taken place not just since 2020 and the killing of George Floyd, and not even, you know, from the last 15, 20 years, just looking back over the history of people of color in this country, interacting with people who are not of color, do you see a way in which this will ever be addressed? These situations that we're facing right now, the two with the two young girls you're talking about, conversations that I have with people on a daily basis, um, you know, the, the interactions you have with colleagues and former colleagues, surprises that we get in our lives, 
based on what we see from people that we didn't think would ever happen. The, the question that I'm asking you, is it a fool's errand for us to think that any of this is ever going to change despite these moments in history where there are great human cries for change? I, I can I can go two ways with this answer, but I'm going to go with the optimistic one. I think the more we are exposed, and I hope this doesn't sound pie in the sky, I think the more we are exposed to each other and different uh parts of our lives that we can reduce these the tensions that we that we see the the stereotypes that people have of different races the the hatred that they have the the lack of understanding uh that they have just from exposure so i think that's just going to come over time i don't because of human nature i don't think that we'll ever overcome the biases and, and discrimination that we use to separate ourselves um or create a pecking order in society. I just think that is how it is. That's human nature. But I think we can reduce it. And I think that's what we should aim for reducing. So you mentioned you mentioned that I'm in national security and I'm a trained analyst. And so a lot of times we are taught to reframe the question. So the question in my mind is not are we ever going to get away from from racism and and these things that divide us and that have divided us over the, the the lifespan of this country? The question is, can we reduce it to such an extent that the playing field can be a little more even for those who are not in the majority race or religion or ethnicity? Um, that's that's how I reframe the question. So when that that makes me feel like an optimist. So yes, I think we can reduce, but it's going to take time and it's about exposure. And you know, one of the things I know, JJ, you spend a lot of time overseas. One of the things that really irks me when I'm overseas and I see the U.S. media that is put out um, overseas. You know, as a Black American, I'm offended that the you know the most stereotypical movies and TV shows are what is portrayed overseas. So of course people are gonna have these perceptions of us. And um, so anyway, that's exposure, but that's the wrong kind of exposure. I'm talking about exposure to the, the 360 degrees that people are as individuals. And so that will cut down on stereotypes and cut down on, on some level of, of negative bias. Basically, you're talking about a mitigation strategy here, right? You can't You can't kill it. You can't because, you know, there is always going to be good and evil. You can't kill it. But there is there. There are ways to cope with it. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. You re- you sum that up very nicely. Well, it was great to hear you say it, though, because now folks understand why I appreciate talking to you so much because of the analytical way in which you think and the way in which you can express uh, some very complex ideas that need to be discussed. But something I want to just hit on really quickly that you mentioned the overseas thing. You're exactly right about that. And one of the things for those who listen to Colors know that not too long ago, um, I in, in the last couple of episodes, I've had some 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 young friends from, from Greece and from Italy and from other places on the show talking about race and their perception of race in America. And one of the things that one of them seemed to suggest was that we in America are naive on many levels when it comes to a lot of things. And uh, he wasn't necessarily talking about uh, people of color. Uh, He was just talking about Americans in general. But one of the things that I also noticed, too, is that a lot of the, the young people there are looking 
for opportunities to engage with us, people of color, all people. And they're not coming into relationships and conversations with us um, laden with those stereotypes that the American media is kind of pushing out. And, you know, I think it's up to us as well, too, to to call out that American media for doing what they do and not just the, the product, but the people behind the products who allow those products to get out. Is that something you can get behind? Absolutely. I This has been one of my my issues for years. Every time I travel overseas, I, I, I look at what they're showing on of American media on TV. I would definitely get behind that. I don't even know where one would start with that because I think there's a profit motive to pushing out uh, certain things. And but I would I would get behind. I could get behind an effort to do that. Well, maybe we'll have the opportunity to do that because you've now brought up something that I think is worth pursuing. So we'll come back to you on that. Um, I know you have a pretty busy day and I want to get to a couple of things that are on your list um, that I haven't asked you about or can't ask you about or won't ask you about. I just want to hear what you think, what's on your mind, what we should be talking about for the remainder of our interview today. (laughs) Well, I mean, I would love to tell you about my work with girl security and what we're doing to kind of cut down on some of the bias and discrimination in the national security space. Let's do it. So what's the first thing you want to share? So I want to share that um, I'm a part of this organization called Girl Security, and Girl Security is all about bringing more exposure to to young women and girls to the national security space, letting them know there's a space for them, even though they may not look like the typical cybersecurity operator or the typical um, counterintelligence officer or the typical whatever, diplomat, whatever. And so that's that's what we're all about. So I run the mentorship program where we match young women up with professionals, professional women in the field to A, give them a role model and to B, just give them some professional guidance as they started on their path and to let them know, hey, if you're interested in any of these topics, because as you know, JJ, the national security space is super broad. If you're interested in any of this stuff from climate change to cybersecurity to intel to whatever, there's a space for you and there's someone who's blazed the trail and and you don't have to have it as tough as as those of us who have blazed the trail have had it. So I would love to share that with you and your listeners so they know that, you know, all these thoughts I have about race in America and, and by extension inequalities, um, right. I'm doing something about it in my in my day job as well, trying to chip away at that. What 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 is the biggest challenge though when it comes to doing this work that you're doing? Well, I think there are a couple. So some people don't think that this organization should exist. You know, they think, well, you know, everyone pull themselves up from their bootstraps. What's the big deal? And that goes back to what we talked about earlier in the conversation. You don't see it if you don't see it. So and then the other thing is just helping the young women to feel confident and to know, hey, if this is a space you're interested in, pursue it. You know, so sometimes, you know, and I've experienced this, too, as as a young professional coming up, gain out of my own way. You know, having that confidence to know, hey, I like this stuff. I'm interested. I can do this. I can see myself doing this. So then have you I'm not sure how long you've been involved in this process, but I've seen some of the social media postings from you and your group. uh, And it seems like you're making a significant um, advance advancement in in, in this venture. So are there any moments or any uh, 
situations where you can point that you can point to where you've actually seen or said to yourself, "Hey, this is actually this is actually working." Absolutely, JJ. Every single day, as I mentioned, I run the mentorship program, so I hear anecdotally from mentees, so our young women and mentors, about how the experience of participating in the mentorship program has changed their lives, changed their course, really opened up avenues for them. And when I hear those, it just makes me happy. I'm like, yes. This is what I should be doing, and this organization is doing what it should be doing. So I hear those stories all the time. And it's just amazing. Just making a connection with someone can just really change the course of their life. And I and it's very satisfying and rewarding. So how can a young girl of color or young any girl of any background get involved in this in this uh, in this organization? Sure. Yeah, we're open to, to girls and young women of all backgrounds, all everything. They just need to be based in the United States, United States folks. But yes, they can go to our website, growsecurity.org. They can follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, all all the platforms um, and and get engaged with us. We have a a mentorship program, a fellowship program, um, and we offer workshops and things from time to time, speed mentoring. We try to, we try to do a little bit of everything so we can, we can reach people where they are. How, how, what's the age range in this age limits? Age range is 14 to 26. So we're hitting those high school girls all the way up to those postgraduates, young professionals. So what are some of the things that you can point to that you're going to be doing in the future? Sure. So we have an upcoming fellowship cohort um, that my colleague is running and that's a 12, 13 week intensive professional development, specifically for national security. We have an upcoming mentorship season starting in, in January. We have a Workforce Futures Alliance where we're bringing in private sector and academic partners to work with us um, to open avenues and pathways for young women getting into the field. So we have a lot of exciting things. Um, We have a curriculum that we're developing for high schools, um, all about national security, just taking it from a different perspective, not the traditional um, perspective that we get, but we're trying to roll in all different perspectives um, to this new curriculum. So we're doing a lot of stuff um, and we have a lot of exciting things coming up for the next year. Okay. Very last thing. Can you share a quick thought about race before you go? Race or racism? Ah, well, I think that race is a fundamental part of who we are. We shouldn't try to erase it, uh, but we should try to respect it, love it, and incorporate it into who we are. And this idea of being colorblind is not a thing. <laughs> Um, that you don't see race. It's not a thing. It's okay to see race. It's a part of who we are. It's all about respect and stripping away those assumptions that we make about each other. Jarena Thomas, thank you so much. That last thing you just said, it's all about respect. Thank you so much for saying that because that's my thing. Respect people around you. Thank you for saying that and thanks for joining us. Thanks, JJ. Stay tuned for some thoughts about race in America and details about our next guest. You're listening to Colors. My name is Lena Sun. I'm a health reporter on the national staff of The Washington Post. I'm Chinese American. I was born in New Jersey. My parents came from China. And the first question I'm often asked is, no, no, where are you really from? <laughs> 
And the answer is, no, I really am from New Jersey. I'm just as American as you. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. If you have any questions or comments about Colors, send us an email. You can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. I was born in the Gambia as a Fulani in the Upper River uh, Division of the country. Came to the United States in 1975. His name is Jeru Bande. I come from a very rich history. Uh, going back to my great-great-grandfather, uh, Musa Molo, who was the great king of Fuladu. He's brought that rich history and culture to Montgomery County, Maryland. My job as one of the five regional directors is to be the link between our county government and our respective regions, in my case, the East County. His extraordinary and important story. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. That's it for this episode of Colors. Thank you, Mike Chikaitis. Thanks, Hillary Howard. Thanks to Offshane. Thanks to Jesse Gallagher and Cosmic for our music. And thank you for listening. And as I always say, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.